The mission of the company is to make the world's information available to everyone, irrespective of where they were born or what language they speak. In our particular industry, there's all sorts of non-financial dynamics, like relationships, and I've worked with this person for 10 years, and they send me a Christmas card, and we're Facebook friends, and like, for an engineer, that was very difficult for me to deal with. Like, I want to show up with a results table and prove to you that this is better, and you're going to save millions of dollars, and you're telling me you're not interested? I don't get it. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, the show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, we hear from Spence Green, founder and CEO of Lilt, which brings a human-in-the-loop, AI-based approach to language translation for large enterprises and governments. We hear a bit about the academic roots of Lilt, discuss their various attempts to find product market fit in the super fragmented translation market, the rigor required to deliver enterprise software, a bit about how Lilt does on-prem deployments, and much, much more. Lilt is a great example of how finding the right feature set, positioning, and go-to-market approach can really make a world of difference for the success of an enterprise software company. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, Spence, thanks so much for joining. Grant, thanks so much. Cool. Uh, so let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I've been interested in computers since I was a little kid, so I get to do exactly what I've always wanted to do my whole life every day, which is great. You know, I majored in computer science in college, and then after college, I was really interested in uh, military systems, specifically in planes. So I went to work for a defense contractor working on large military systems. And while I was doing that, I was part of that time overseas, and I got interested in languages and information access. And it was right around that time in 2006 that Google Translate came out. And I bought a book, which was full of statistics, which I didn't understand. And I realized that I I really wanted to work on this technology, but I lacked the mathematical skills and the computational skills to work on it. And so I left for grad school and 2008 to start doing um, machine translation research. Oh, interesting. So that was inspired because you thought that Google Translate was really interesting, but you weren't really grokking all of the, the the different sort of math behind it? Well, I didn't understand until grad school that computer science and software engineering are not the same thing. Especially in machine learning, well, it's just really math and statistics. And my mathematical maturity was pretty low. Um, even though I was a good programmer. So I had to go to grad school to develop those tools to be able to work on these systems, which now people talk about machine learning, but in those days, you, you know, there were no frameworks. If you wanted to write an optimizer, you wrote it from scratch. Mm. The first optimizer that I wrote for our machine translation system was about 6,000 lines of code, I think, and you can do that in one line of TensorFlow these days. So there's been tremendous progress in making this technology more accessible, but none of that existed 
10, 12 years ago. So you went to went to Stanford, started getting your master's, and eventually you got your PhD there, right? That's correct. Yeah, I started in the master's program because I really had no research background, and to get a get into a good PhD program, you have to have a paper. So I built my research credentials so that I could go on to a PhD, and then it's right around that time that I, while I was working, kind of had to find a research direction, and that's when I met my now co-founder, John, and picked up on a thread of research that's been going on since the late 60s that nobody had ever really gotten to work. And that became sort of my dissertation and then a lot of the work that we did together and now the fundamental technology in the company. Oh, cool. So for some pretty strong academic roots here for, for Lilt then. So, and just, just talk quickly about Lilt, like the company you've, you've started. Sure. We provide uh, translation of text to institutions, where institutions means uh, large enterprises and governments. Cool. Okay. So then you're at university getting your PhD. You find this like older body of work that like what why had why had the work stopped on that? Well, it had never really stopped, but it was at the intersection of uh, natural language processing, which is my field, and human computer interaction. So it's sort of interactive machine learning. Now people kind of call it human in the loop learning. And it kind of sits at the divide between these two fields and they're just there are not really many people working there, and you sort of need a really a specialized machine translation system to support and work with a human, and then you need a really specific type of interface for the human to work in. And there really hadn't been somebody who had been spending equal amounts of attention on both the back-end technology and the user interactions. So I got a co-advisor from HCI, and then I was like co-advised for the second half of my PhD, and we we made contributions to both developing interfaces for this task and developing the backend technology. Cool. And so, you know, from the enterprise use case, like you're basically making it easier to translate all of their internal documents and marketing. Or what's what's the how yeah, are folks th- using it? That's exactly right. So, John, our our initial interest was in books when we started working together, why don't more books get translated? Hmm. And recall, we're approaching this from the perspective of MT researchers working on Google Translate, which is like, I don't know, just put some text in a website and it generates a translation. What's so hard about that? And so we started to understand how companies do translation, and we were amazed to discover that in those days, and really even today, very little technology is used. Companies that serve enterprises serve as boutiques. And so they operate very much like law firms. They hire a bunch of professional freelance translators whom they give work to and do project management with. And then they give that work, that text, back to the enterprise. And it's human labor, so they try to mark it up as much as they possibly can. Which is why stuff doesn't get translated. It's like it's like working with a law firm. Yeah, they're just trying to you know mark up as much as they possibly can, and we're approaching it as technology people, which of course we want to like drive it down as much as we possibly can. Sure. And so there was just like an impedance mismatch between what we wanted to see in the world and what this industry was structurally set up to do. Mm. Okay. So then, is that was that the like okay we should start a company around this? Well, it was more pragmatic than that, I suppose. My advisor, who I owe a great deal to and was very influential in my life and continues to be, but he, you know, kind of a couple years into grad school, he 
said to me one day, you know, it seems like your work is pretty applied. You ought to learn about companies. Mm. And so I started spending some time at a venture capital firm just listening to pitches and trying to studying this market. The quid pro quo is these investors would help me like understand this market that I was trying to understand and I would do due diligence for them because in those, this is like 2013 and the first couple of companies pitching machine learning and it was just like really bad. So I just <laughs> sit there and kind of say like, no, that doesn't work. And then John and I faced a choice which was, okay, we knew, we got the technology to work and we knew it was going to happen. It was inevitable. And so it was like, okay, we could stay in research, keep publishing papers and, you know, create open source project. We could try to go to a big company and advocate for building something like this, or we could start a company. And, and John, more so than me, felt like the highest impact route and the way to get it into the hands of users fastest was to start a company, even though we had really no qualifications or experience to do that. With the exception of, you know, I'd been hanging around a venture capital firm trying to understand how companies are started. Sure, but I, I'm pretty sure that describes most entrepreneurs. You know, we don't have any qualifications to start companies. Only, only the second time or third time do you feel like you actually know what you're doing. First time, you just jump in. Yeah, I think that's true. Although I would wonder if you looked at the successful outcomes in enterprise, my hypothesis would be it's usually second time founders. Yeah, I think that's probably less true on the consumer side and much more true on the enterprise side. I think that's true. Yeah, it's where execution risk becomes like you can take away execution risk. Yeah, that's right. On the consumer side, I was listening to an interview with uh, I think Justin Tan recently, who's recently started this technology enabled law firm. Right. And so not I, too far off, kind of what you're. There's you're a about, whole yeah. class of businesses now that are sort of technology-enabled services. It's happening in software testing. It's happening in localization. Mm-hmm. It's happening in legal. It's happening in bookkeeping. Mm. And in the consumer side, you have sort of market risk, and so like lean startup principles apply. Like figure out if there's a market there as quickly as possible, and it's sort of like throwing spaghetti at a wall. Mm-hmm. In enterprise, like we know there's a market for law firms. There's no sort of market risk to sort out there. There's a lot of execution risk sure. to be able to do what a Cooley or a Gunderson does. Right. And and that requires people who are expensive, expertise that's specialized, and you need to sort of look like a business and present as a business long before you actually are a business. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because I feel like it sounds like you're you know, Lilt was really the only difference is it's it's really core technology that you'd been building and focused on, and you had this truly deep subject matter expertise around machine learning for translation in a way that, that maybe yeah, Google and Microsoft did. That's about it. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple other companies, but really, in terms of building large scale production systems, Google and Microsoft are and, and IBM. I will include IBM in that class as well, but, sure. but experience building these large-scale production systems—that's true. Okay, so then you decided to start a company, and mm-hmm. your co-founder, you guys jumped together. How, how did that? How did it work? How did you split it off? Yeah, John was leaving Google to go uh, to Berkeley to join the faculty, and the third person involved in the early days was Franz Och, who started the group at Google and is a, is a sort of pioneer in our field, and he was leaving Google as well. And Franz had worked on this idea in the late '90s when he was in grad school, and then had kind of gone off in a different direction. And he was, he, you know, he was very encouraging in the early days when I started. I picked up this line of work, and so he advised us a lot and, and helped us a lot in the early days of thinking about the business. And 
thinking about the product and so on. Hmm, cool. So what did you do? You went to market, you know, with this translation technology, and who, like, how did you start to get people to get in front of people? What was the what was the plan? Well, our first hypothesis was just completely wrong, as were our next four hypotheses. It was the fifth <laughs> business model that actually worked, and so our industry is this outsourced multi-step supply chain. And our fundamental insight was that if you could use technology to enable a translator to do more work per unit time, then you could compress the cost of translation. And we also had results from grad school days that you could use technology to increase quality as well. So you can make them more effective and you can make them faster and you can monetize that productivity to reduce cost. Mm. And so we thought we would sell a tool for you know 20 bucks a month to translators and they'll buy it. And for them, it's a margin game. They can do more work per unit time, charge their customers whatever they want, and keep more of it themselves. Are translators generally like independent contractors? Yeah, over 80% of the workforce is independent contractor. Okay, so you have all these independent contractors and they're doing this like part-time, full-time combination? Some of them do it as a second job. A lot of them do it as a first job, but it's episodic in nature, so they, they alternate between looking for work and doing work. But the idea was that, like, okay, we should, you know, we can make them more effective. They're going to deliver better results. It's going to help them, you know, make more money. Exactly. So they'll they'll get it. Completely rational to us. Yeah. And it was just completely wrong. Well, what was what was wrong about it? Well, in this supply chain, every link in the supply chain dictates technology and workflow choices to every link further down. Mm. So these translators they work for a services boutique, and the services boutique tells them what tool to use. The services boutiques tend to work for bigger services boutiques. <laughs> so, and those bigger ones tell the smaller ones what to do. And the bigger services boutiques, they work directly for customers. And customers oftentimes tell the big services boutique what to do. So it took us longer than it should have to figure this out. But it's very difficult for any of these services boutiques to standardize on one production workflow. Therefore, when they're looking at a new tool, it's always like the 15th tool that they might have in their inventory, and they can't use it for all their customers. Therefore, they're not willing to spend a lot of money, so the deal size is very small. And this technology that we're building is very, very expensive. So it's just like the economics did not work. Mm, right, because I, th- I mean, you mentioned before this, you guys maintain a research team. Like you have, We do, yeah. We have six or seven people in the company with PhDs. Yeah, that are actively... Trying to improve your, like, I guess, called underlying engine or like that's correct. technology, however yeah. you describe it. That's correct. And, and that's expensive. It's not cheap. Yeah. They don't work for free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they are very altruistic, but you know, they don't work for free. Yeah. Okay, so how did you discover it was wrong? You were just like, you were trying to bring it to customers and, or was it like they just wouldn't pay enough? What, what was the. Yeah, it was just like one false dawn after another. We would. You know, okay, here's our next hypothesis. We'd tweak the product a little bit, you know, tweak the positioning, try to run a sales cycle, and we'd win five customers or something. Mm. And we're like, yes, this is it. And then, you know, we wouldn't wouldn't be able to get any more customers. So the breakthrough came about a year and a half ago when we realized that we couldn't partner with anybody in the industry because their whole industry business model was structurally aligned against what we were trying to do. And so what we decided to do was to start a services business ourselves and mm. vertically integrate. Okay. And so now we go to a, to a customer and we you provide the human translator 
provide the software as well. When you sort of internalize the complexity of the whole supply chain, then you can optimize across it. Mm. And you can have strict SLAs for speed, quality, and on-time delivery. You can optimize for cost. It just affords a lot of opportunities that you, you can't do when you're sort of depending on vendors. Right, because when you're working with that vendor supply chain, you're just a part of it. Basically, even though you're making it more efficient, anyone can take the efficiency out of it. That's right. right. You're you're optimizing like sort of one link, and it may be that that link is not on the critical path. Right. So you've got to own the whole thing, and then just like systematically knock out the critical path. Okay, and so I mean that sounds like a pretty big undertaking. Were you able to? How were you able to expand? You know, you just sort of. Work with a customer where you were the entire supply chain, or you just keep going up the stack. How, how did you get to that? It was less elegant than that, I suppose. We made the decision. It must have been about two years ago now that we were gonna. I mean, one benefit of climbing the supply chain was what that we understood how the supply chain worked, mm. and so that was a painful experience. But it did give us the operational knowledge to set up a services unit ourselves. And, and so when you say services, this isn't like professional services, this is like actual people who are doing translation, right? Yeah, it's like professional services. So we source, qualify, and manage these independent contractors. And we, you know, we sort of train them for each customer account that we work on. And so it's not professional services in the sense that you're used to, which is like setting up on-prem software. Right. It's the human in the loop. Right, so they're actually doing the translation. They're, they're like part of the product. They're, right? part, yeah, human, they're, yeah. they're part of the, we think of it as a production process. Our whole company is a factory. Mm. Words come in one side, they go through a bunch of production stages, and words come out the other side with certificates mm. of quality, and you know, there's like a on-time delivery SLA and stuff like that. The human translators are essential factors in the production process. Okay, and so when I think about Internationalization of products, right? That's kind of my familiarity with a lot yeah. of translation. Yeah, you know, as a, when I was at a, an enterprise software company, we we had to, you know, internationalize and basically make our product work with a bunch of different languages. Is that part of this? Is like part of what Lilt's offering? Is the ability to like, you know, put in these strings and then we'll substitute out all the different languages for your tech? That's your, exactly right. Okay. Product interfaces, support pages, marketing websites, product documentation. Media articles, anything that's written down. And like, how far into like web translation do you get? Do you have like JavaScript that goes in the page that's in subbing things out, or how do you like managing the database in the back end? How far? That's the enterprise integration point with our product, which is we usually connect directly to the CMS or the the repo where okay. the linguistic content is stored. So by the time it's rendered as a web page, it's you know come out of a CMS and been combined in various ways and and rendered in a view. And so we typically work with the raw linguistic content, which is stored in some kind of repository. Okay. So either a CMS or like Git, maybe a source. Yeah, for for user interface, there's a resources file or something that's in a Git repo, and so we connect to that. Cool. That's super helpful. Okay. So now you know you sort of made this realization. You needed to verticalize, right, yeah. and to take the entire supply chain. What next, right? So like, you know, was it? Just instantly, everybody understood, and they were able to start using it. Or did you have to, you know, start to change your product, add more features? Like, what was the? <laughs> yeah, well, I think as you probably know, painfully in the enterprise, it's about 
for the initial sale, it's about 95% sales and marketing and 5% product. I think for the renewal and the upsell product starts to matter, but you know, a complex multi-stage enterprise sales motion is, there are so many ways you can fail and lose in that before you even get to servicing the customer. Sure. That that's the part you've got to learn and get right. So, and then suddenly you go from a little webpage that we had with a credit card sign up hooked up to Stripe to now a six-month sales cycle or, you know, whatever it was at the time. And, and so it's harder to run experiments, right? Because like, okay, I'm going to mm-hmm. go to enterprise now and I'm not going to know whether this works for months. But, I mean, you knew that it was like, I'm guessing you were like interviewing some customers and talking to people. We were interviewing some customers, it's true. And again, the benefit of going into a mature market is that you know how they buy things right now. You know what their budgets are. They're spending a truckload of money on Mm -hmm. on this function. It's just figuring out how to differentiate. And in our particular industry, there's all sorts of non-financial dynamics like relationships and I've worked with this person for 10 years and they send me a Christmas card and we're Facebook friends and like for an engineer that was very difficult for me to deal with like I want to show up with a results table and prove to you that this is better and you're going to save millions of dollars and you're telling me you're not interested I don't get it yeah that's the uh, the human side of enterprise software which is which is I mean why salespeople exist, right? And That's exactly right. Yeah, because yeah. they help figure the human element out and, and kind of navigate those relationships. Yeah, they sort of we talked about this a lot with our sales team, but they they sort of manage complexity on behalf of the customer or something. They sort of manage the complexity of solutions in the world and sort of match that to what the customer wants. Sure. Yeah. And especially in a consultative sale, which which ours is. Yeah, and so I mean, what's your like? You know, average like order size is it in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per year? Or is it? Yeah, yeah, great. So pretty high ticket item. You're coming in here, but you're to your point. You're actually displacing some existing budget, maybe in some incumbents. So you're not trying to convince these enterprises that like they need to do translation. They're already doing it. They They're get already it. doing it. Every yeah. business of a certain size does it. Um, translation is bilingual writing and. I think every business, you know, with the internet, we think it's kind of an insult that you don't provide a native language customer experience to all of your customers. And eventually, we would like to make it possible for everybody to do that. It's yeah. too complicated right now. And I'll give you an example: we do not provide a native language customer experience to all of our customers because we didn't build our software the right way and we didn't build our website the right way. And so we're in the process of rearchitecting everything because there's an engineering dependency too. You know, hard coding strings into things, and you've got to like redesign all your interfaces and pull all the strings out. We, I mean, we were clueless about it too. Yeah, when you make that, we I've done it twice. It's 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 a real it's a feat. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lot of lift, and if you didn't set it up that way to start, you know, I mean, which most people don't, right? Yeah. Then then you're in a hurry. You don't know if you're going to fail. There's you can get traction in English, which, yeah. so that's completely rational decision making. But then at some point, you have to. Retrench and make it a priority. The hardest part for me was uh, was actually getting my mind around RTL, so right to left languages. Right. Just still like when I was trying to understand how to you know build in translation for languages that you would read the other direction. I was like, well, how do how do you even look at a page the yeah. same way? Right. Like it just yeah. it like flipped me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, and there's some other interesting pieces just around you know particularly for web design where. 
you know, words and things become integrated into, you know, specific sizes and, you know, different languages can expand outwards. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's some, there's some really interesting challenges in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so it's not just about like web pages, right? It's about like all the content that people have. Any text, any, any strings. Yeah. Anywhere. We don't do speech, but, uh, okay. Any, any text anywhere. Which, I mean, the internet has a lot, a lot of. There's so. a lot of text yeah. on the internet. Yeah. It's true. You start to kind of vertically integrate. You get you're getting some success. Was it like a, a specific first big enterprise deal that you sort of like that made you realize this was it? Yeah, we we won a couple deals. We won the first three, and then that was kind of a false dawn. But we kept going because there was nowhere else to go. Hmm. Because you tried different angles on this, we'd, we'd explored the entire supply chain. There was vertical integration was the last resort. I mean, I, I you know, you read like Michael Porter competitive strategy. Vertical integration is a rational strategy for consolidating a fragmented market. I think you've got to think very hard before you're going to do it because it doesn't work in all business. The PC industry is a is a good idea, is is a good example. Vertically integrating a PC company, Apple tried it and they have two percent market share. Turns mm-hmm. out it's much better to have. You know, a bunch of component suppliers. So it doesn't work in every market, but I think in some markets it is the right strategy. It did turn out to be the right strategy with mobile phones, right? Mm-hmm, right. And my Apple reaps enormous profits from vertically integrating the phone. But for us, we closed a couple deals. We worked really hard to make those successful. We were also running short on cash at that point. We were always undercapitalized and understaffed because we we always you know we raise money for sort of a B to C type go to market motion. Then we raised money for like an S and B go to market motion. And then midway through that, we decided we had to go to enterprise. We were always understaffed. Um, How big was the company when you made that transition? You remember? To enterprise? Yeah. Six, five. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was rough. And I was doing the selling and I'm, you know, I'm not probably in the top 10 million people, salespeople worldwide. And, and so it just, it just took us a while to get a couple more deals to where there was enough. Proof there that we could raise enough money that we could hire the functions. That, I mean, we had engineers doing CS. I'm doing sales. It was not good. Yeah. <laughs> and um, now we have the functional areas that a business expects to work with and a and a partner, but we just never had the money for that before. But you were able to still close some of those deals and get enough proof points that. You were able to raise your next round. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Is it just like that your customers like loved the solution? It was clearly better. Like, what's the th- what's the thing that drove this as like an obvious or as as a as a good business? Unit economics. The unit economics of the business are undeniable, hmm. and we had proof for that, even though we didn't have a ton of customers to show for it. And the technology is inevitable. The technology has always been, you know, since five years ago, it's been inevitable. And so you put those two things together and you can see what the future looks like, even though there's a lot of hand-to-hand combat to get there. And well, the hand-to-hand combat is execution, which is the, <laughs> which is the hard part. Sure. Okay, so just the unit economics of like, how much does it cost you to correctly translate a document versus how much does it cost like yeah. the, whole, the rest yeah, of the if system? If I can make one person use technology to make one person... You know, five times more productive. Yeah, which we proved a long time ago. Like you can do something with that. Yeah, even if there's an enormous amount of resistance in the market. I mean, part of the challenge is like if you've taken four different approaches to the go-to market, and then you're finally trying to go to the enterprise. At that point, 
you're pretty burnt out. You're like investors are not seeing a lot of success. Yeah. You know, your employees are are kind of tired and you're just trying thing after thing. Yeah. I mean, how did you how did you push through that? I think this is where having an academic background was enormously helpful mm. because we viewed it as just running experiments and most of your experiments fail. So the repeated fails experiments didn't bother me so much. I think what did bother me was the irrationality of it. I mean, I still think <laughs> I still think it's irrational. Like financially it didn't make any sense, but you've got to realize especially in the enterprise that people are not they're oftentimes making decisions that aren't even aligned with their own business. They're aligned with their own career or you know, what's going to make them do less work or what's going to get them some promotion or raise or something like that. And you got to figure all that out in each account. And that's not to criticize or anything, yeah, but I course. think anybody who's done enterprise sales knows that there are a bunch of interpersonal factors that you have to deal with that are not purely financial. Yeah, it's a really great point that there's a lot more under the hood. And you know, I think as engineers, we often think it's like, well, clearly the best solution will win. But you have to think about it from the perspective of each person who's impacted by it, yeah. right? Yeah, and things start to matter, like having in-person meetings. I mean, I'm flying to the East Coast next week for 20 hours yeah. to have one meeting. Yeah. And you know, if you told me a year and a half ago that that was a good idea, I would have thought, well, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for your health, and it's just a complete waste of time. But it turns out in the enterprise that it really does matter. Yeah. And so, you know, what, some of the other... Things you probably had to build along the way, right? You, I'm guessing when you were trying to sell to you know the prosumer folks, there probably wasn't even like the idea of a you know team, right? You probably couldn't like you know manage you know and, and invite other people to to do stuff together, right? Yeah, we kind of we're in the <laughs> we've been in this about year long journey of implementing role based access control, which seems simple in practice, but it touches every part of the system, and it's just been a huge execution challenge for us. But we kind of grafted on this sharing function. But as you say, you know, the basic things that you need in enterprise software, audit logging, access control, reporting, um, and, reporting you know, yeah, single, single sign-on, sign right. all that stuff, we're having to build back into the product later on. Because okay. it was it was never really designed or set up for that. Oh, so even today, do you have a single sign-on solution or how do well, it has Google OAuth. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's got that, and yeah. that's really all that our customers want. Yeah, that's definitely probably the fastest way to a single sign-on solution. At some point, you know, you end up building out a SAML thing, but yeah, you know, Google has some SAML integration. So, yeah. you know, generally, the only only pushback you end up with is the folks who are like, "Yeah, we're a Microsoft. You know, we use Microsoft everything." So, yeah, or you're Office trying to sell in China, where it's a big problem. Right. Yeah. Even so, my my trips to China, trying to even just like. Use Google Maps was probably the biggest challenge. Yeah. I was like, "Wait, well, that's how I get around." Yeah, that's right. What do I do? Yeah, cool. So now that you're feeling this pool, you're seeing these requests, and you know that, like, hey, we have to get some of these features built into the product right. in order to continue to grow and get some of these enterprise deals. Right. One thing that we often hear is that enterprises are somewhat forgiving around some of these features as long as you commit to building them. Right. Yeah, I think it becomes much more important to even if you know there's some companies that have like public facing roadmap, which I don't think it really matters in the enterprise, mm-hmm. but you definitely need to have guidance that this is going to be done and the timeliness of doing it. Our customers are not like this has to be done next week, 
But if you tell them it's going to be done in two months, well, you better get it done in two months. Mm -hmm. And I found it's very difficult to get engineering teams. It's like sort of like training an athlete or something. Engineering teams around the idea of there's a deadline and we have to hit it. And if we're not going to hit it, we have to rescope so that we do hit it. And I think that's peculiar to software engineering because in the physical engineering disciplines, like the rocket is going to take off at some time. You have to stop and prepare to launch the rocket. The bridge, cars are going to go over it at a certain time. You just can't keep pushing it off and pushing it off, pushing it off. The building, people are going to ride the elevators at some point, mm -hmm. and it has to be done. And I think that it's much harder to get engineers conditioned around that idea that customer expectations have to be met. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's important to, to qualify this. You are the CEO, but you're also the like you're the engineering leader up until very recently, yeah, right? Until last week. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> you you say this not from the uh, perspective of like the CEO top down, but from the, someone who's like in the weeds building software with the team. Yeah. And there's a discipline in en enterprise software engineering that I think it's just different, right? You just like you have to meet commitments. You have to think about stability. Security is a paramount, yeah. right? Yeah, regressions, the tolerance for that is very, very low. And like you say, you've got to think about security much earlier than you would maybe at a consumer company. Although I think the you know, sort of the winds blowing in the world are changing that a little bit right now. But but still you're gonna yeah. go through an infosec process when you're selling to an enterprise customer and you've got to have documentation and you've got to you know, have some plan for GDPR and SOC 2 and if you're selling to the government for FedRAMP and kind of a timeline for all that. And you just don't have to do that in, you know, in consumer settings. Yeah, I mean, in the consumer, prosumer world, you're selling software to people who like, maybe if you get really huge, they start to get concerned about how you handle their data. But yeah. if you're just kind of going, I mean... You and I probably think about it. We you you probably don't put a lot of data into like other random tools that are hosted because you understand security now, yeah. but much of the consumer and prosumer world isn't isn't concerned about it. That's right. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a fair claim. Yeah, and then you know, one of the things we were talking about before is you guys made a pretty big investment in Kubernetes early on, right? We did, yeah. And you love it. You think it's been it's been hugely helpful. Yeah. So the core feature of our product is predictive typing. And so what it looks like is when you're typing I don't know, a message on your phone and it's predicting words and phrases for you, or now you see this in Gmail with that Smart Compose feature, oh, yeah. you're typing and it's predicting words and phrases. That's what ours does, only it's bilingual. So I'm reading in Arabic, I'm typing in English, and it's translating. Every time I type a word, it gives me a new translation. And you've got a budget of about 300 milliseconds to get a translation back. Otherwise, the system feels really sluggish and it's unusable. Mm. So it's been a multi-region system since the beginning. And it's a bunch of different services, right? And so it got to be like every time we were pushing out software, you had to log into the region. We had like a bunch of instances running. You had to log into each machine, you know, pull the Docker image over and restart the thing. And I had an engineer, and every time we'd do a release, it would take half of his workday to update all the clusters around the world. Mm. So I guess it was in... Early 2017, maybe, we decided that we would move to Kubernetes. That's right, as that became like not an insane decision, right? Like, yeah. Prior to that, it was like it was pretty early and, you know, it was, it was still very questionable as, as to like 
if it was truly production ready, you yeah. know, and how much could it scale? Yeah, so you know, I mean, John had worked with Borg and everything at Google, and I'd used mm. it a little bit when I was when I was there. I, I worked for John. That's how we met. I was his intern, and so, you know, those ideas have been in Google for a hundred years or whatever. Um, yeah. So we knew that's okay. That's what we want to do. But we ended up rewriting big parts of our system, and you know, you end up writing. <laughs> these enormous Helm charts to deploy this small microservice, and that's a little bit alarming when you have to start doing it. But but now we've got a really nice setup where all the regions around the world, you know, you tag a release in GitHub, it goes off to, we run in Google Cloud, so it goes off to GCR, builds the Docker image, and then it does a staged incremental rollout all the regions around the world, and we can roll out specific microservices, or we can roll out the whole system. I was saying doing a rollout. Yeah. In enterprise, you got to think hard about a rollback. If you have a regression, your customer call you real. Mine, ours call me on the phone. It happens real quick. And yeah. so, you know, the person's now spending a half a day rolling out software. Trying to roll it back. Yeah. You, know, you got to roll it back. <laughs> you spend another half a day rolling yeah. the whole thing back. So it, it has certainly enabled us to release and roll back faster. But, but I think as you and I were talking before the interview started, the whole notion of writing sort of containerized software changes the way you kind of think about writing software. I know, you know I was still cutting code when we, when we made this change, and it, it certainly changed the way that I had thought about writing software for the first 30 years of my life or whatever it was. Yeah, the best practices for and patterns for creating scalable distributed systems, right? I think are just yeah. baked in. If you're going to build it, it's going to be compatible with Kubernetes. Yeah. It's it's going to match those patterns. It's yeah. going to leverage those primitives. Yeah, and we see a massive shift in terms of how software is involved and deployed. Ultimately, I think the best part is going to be faster software releases, more reliability. Yeah, and then that's going to. Create a whole order of second, you know, factor effects, right? Second, yeah. you know, second order effects. It also, I mean, it kind of creates. Now you have like a, a control plane for your system, right? And so you can start to wire in monitoring with Grafana or something, and you can sure. wire in pager duty, and you know, you can log in and see what all the services are doing. And you know, in the days when we just have a bunch of instances, I mean, I guess you can roll all that yourself, or but that's kind of <laughs> an unpleasant an unpleasant task and and now you really have like a control plane for a big multi-region distributed system. Yeah, and because it's become the common way to do it. Yeah. I think there's actually going to be this really interesting piece which is as everyone starts to adopt the same way to do this, I think you're actually going to be able to hire engineers faster and onboard them faster into your product and your deployment without them having to learn some like esoteric internally created system and like, you know, the ability to actually bring folks in using a common tool set across the industry to achieve these great results, I think is actually going to have a profound impact as well. That's certainly our story. So we, you know, we didn't have a dedicated DevOps person. Um, so the the team, I mean, we have a research scientist on the team that now one of them in particular really likes Kubernetes a lot. I mean, I, whatever he he's all into it. But anyway, we had people on the team learning how to do this, and it was really kind of quite painful because it is a Specialized skill set, and there are not many people at that time who, right. who had mastered it. So it took us six months to find our first DevOps person. But when we did, and he's a star in our company now, you know, within two weeks he was kind of like out of my way. You guys don't know what you're doing, and he like owns our whole production system. Nice. Whereas if we had had a bunch of you know homebrew stuff that we had put together to run this system across regions, that that would not have been possible. 
cool. And then you guys also distribute this on-prem to customers, right? You deliver. So the other advantage that it has had is that at that time we only had a hosted system, mm. and now we have started working with customers who want to run, say, like in an AWS VPC, mm-hmm. or they want to run. For some of our government customers, there are government regions of AWS that have different requirements. And now we have uh, bare metal deployments as oh, well. Sure. And so all of the investment to make the system, to containerize the system, there's still been significant work to support each one of these deployment targets, but each time we do it, it gets easier. Yeah. And I don't know, we just wouldn't have been able to do that before. Yeah, I mean, if you were using, well, first, you know, if, the challenge would be you were on Heroku, right? Like, there's no chance. No, no right? chance, right? <laughs> and then the second option is like, okay, well, you're using AWS, but then you're you have some like proprietary AWS service underneath the hood. That's right. That's right. And it becomes harder and harder. So, the, so the advantage with Kubernetes, especially if you're leveraging some of these more portable components, right, is you can take it anywhere. That's right. That's cool. And so. The other thing, I mean, generally that helps with the security story too, right? So when you're talking to customers, I often find that like the vendor security questionnaires, you know, there's really two parts to vendor security. There's like the core, you know, software development practices and sort of, hey, are you doing code review and how do you like you know test for vulnerabilities? And that's going to matter no matter where the software is deployed. And there's like a policy aspect. Do you have an incident response plan? And you know, where is the system running and things like that? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Then there's like the the operational side. And some, you know, it's like, hey, do you have locks on your doors? You you know, like you know, because it's like if people have access to uh, your your laptops and you don't have YubiKeys in them, you know, it's like all these things that they they become very concerned about. The policy and security of you know not just your systems but also your processes internally. So yeah, 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 just something that we think about a lot. Cool. So when you think about you know these enterprise you know offerings and how customers are using your software, are there any like surprising you know requirements that you're seeing things that you didn't expect but you're seeing from a handful of different customers? I don't know if there are any surprising product requirements. Okay. I think that customers' expectations for stability mm. and availability are very high. And so the sort of move fast and break things ethos, which I actually find to be very attractive and was beneficial to us when we were trying to you know, get product market fit or whatever you want to call it, was the right way to push. We were just like push, 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 especially since we were trying different business hypotheses. Mm-hmm. You're like, get the product in shape, Put some feature out that solves eighty percent of the problem, so that we can try to sell. But now customers more value consistent and stable releases. And I thought that the sort of move fast and break things was harder because there's like a sense of urgency to get things to work. So there's like intense time pressure. Mm-hmm. But actually, getting to a point where you can push things out consistently, and more importantly, engineers. You know, you only have to have a couple regressions before people start to get really nervous about pushing things and breaking the production system. And so we're we're actually you know kind of in this trough right now where we're being really really conservative because we don't have a staging environment that accurately reflects the mm. sorts of phenomena in our production environment. That partially has to do with cost. Our production environment's pretty expensive and we can't replicate it fully. Mm. And so we're in the middle of trying to 
figure that out. But it's what our customers want is just like, don't break it. Yeah. Because if you break it, I can't do my job. Yeah. And that can be hard for our engineers to internalize sometimes. So I tell them like, what is your tolerance for GitHub being down? Like how long before <laughs> you blow your stack? Right. And it's like, you know, five minutes, 15 and a half seconds. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And yeah. so, okay. So now imagine our customers, this is their GitHub. Yeah. You understand why they're so upset. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, particularly if folks haven't been at enterprise for a long time or they don't really understand the critical nature of the work that's being done, it can be hard to, to, to really get it. You know, because I think too, our industry is focused on sort of, that move fast and break things, blameless postmortems, like yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, really yeah. like, hey, like mistakes happen, right? And embracing that. Yeah. Which look like I mean, agree, mistakes do happen. Yeah. But we shouldn't sacrifice like the rigor in, in using it as an excuse. Right? That's right. Yeah. And, and by the way, our team is doing a great job. Sure. And this has been a real organizational effort over the last 12 months or so. We've made a lot of progress. I'm just I'm simply pointing out that the discipline and the rigor required in enterprise software is sort of going back to my early life and I was working on planes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There you're doing things that are, you know, sort of unholy in modern software engineering, like waterfall and writing huge requirements specifications and doing significant software verification. And I'm and not formal gonna, verification. Formal so, verification, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you know, writing everything in ADA, which basically has static typing and basically will not compile unless you know all of the types match. And there's a reason why those technologies exist. Right. And I'm not suggesting you should go back to that. But when you're in the business of putting a plane together or something, that is somewhere along that path towards that level of rigor is where you have to go the bigger the enterprise you serve. Yeah. And it's complex, right? It's, it's a hard thing to tell to to like help your team understand, especially as like we're using these emerging technologies. Yeah, we're using Kubernetes, which is breaking all the I mean, we our system's written in TensorFlow, which every release is not compatible with the previous release. And so like all the underlying technologies are moving really, really quickly. And yeah. you're trying to sort of suppress all that instability to provide this really stable application layer. And that's tough too. And then the funny thing is, you you have a you know a, a React front end and like you know a single page app and like some JavaScript error brings the whole thing down. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like it's like wait wait the, <laughs> yeah. why? Yeah. It's like the whole complicated part yeah. works perfectly, and then there's yeah. like you click the wrong link, hit yeah. it, you know, white screen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's it's interesting though. It's like I I think about this because. You know, there's vendor security questionnaires, but I haven't seen like a vendor reliability questionnaire yet, right? I think it's something that's probably going to happen more and more over time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know SLAs are like part of it, but you know, there's just so much I think now that we can be doing to build truly reliable software, and the patterns are pretty established, right? So, so maybe that's a, a thing that's going to kind of emerge in the in the coming years mm-hmm. because yeah, it's like software downtime. Is it costs real money? It does. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, when you think about like the future for Lilt, right? You were the subject matter expert, the CEO and the CTO for the first few years. I'm gonna say three and a half or so. I mean, somewhere in that range. Well, I had a, I had a great team. That was the key part, I think. Sure, you had a great team, but but you were kind of leading each of these functions for a while, right? That's true. Yeah, and that's a hard thing to do as a founder, right? And your co-founders isn't full time. At the business too, right? That's correct. Which is it could also be hard because it's like there's some there's some amount of just a lot of weight on your shoulders, right? 
Well, I think if it was a different person, maybe. But mm. uh, John and I have we've worked together the same way for a long time, and I may look non-standard externally, but it works for us. That's, and, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'd do without him. Yeah, I totally. I, I get that. But I, I guess my point is just like you're you're kind of now making this transition where you're bringing on some other leaders, right? Yeah, that's you know, that's true. That's and, true. And you kind of mentioned you just brought on. You're really just. Taking your first step back from managing the software team, that's day right. Day basically, right? That's right. That's right. And, and one of the hard things is, is finding folks that have that experience to come in and, and help lead and be, you know, execute at this at this level, you know, because you're a startup, but you're also trying to accomplish like big company things, right? Mm-hmm. So, what are some of those areas where you're, you're looking for great people? Well, we've got some great engineering leaders in the company now. That's taken some time, so that is very promising. We're still looking for, I also am sort of the acting head of our services team, too. Mm. So we're looking for a services leader right now, which will be a partner to both sales and to, to engineering. And then by that, do you mean like actual professional services, like where you're like helping to set managing, up the systems? Managing our translator teams. Managing translator teams, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a separate function in engineering. We now have more requirements for sort of on-site support, more common professional services, sure. whereas for us, services has always been managing these this labor pool, right. uh, our, our community of translators. But we do have increasingly requirements to with these on-prem deployments sure. of supporting customers you know, wherever their deployment is. So then this idea of someone's operational and can come in and help you know, manage a large talent pool and, and help them accomplish the yeah. human in the loop part of, of yeah, your job. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're still looking for still looking for that leader. The other functions are starting to consolidate. Yeah, this is one of those businesses. I think that's you know a lot, a lot of my time is spent in like infrastructure software, so like software for software engineers, right? Yeah. And I think this is interesting to see because the customer is is very different. Yeah, and. You know, it's also it's not marketing technology. It's not like you know, there's not a a huge category of other contemporaries that are all doing related things. So it's it's a it's a smaller talent pool to find folks in, right? Yeah, and especially you know, engineering wise, the number of people who have built and managed like core machine learning products. Most of those people are in in the big companies, so it's very mm-hmm. hard to find that. In startups, you can find it some places. The nearest analogs that we found are in, you know, like security, ad tech, like large scale distributed databases and stuff like that. Oh, sure. You can find people who have managed systems of this complexity. Yeah. One one of my friends, Zach, you know, runs a sales team here and and he's described it a couple times. You know, is really more about like making the world's information available, right? Yeah. The mission of the company is to make the world's information available. To everyone, irrespective of where they were born or what language they speak. Yeah, it's a compelling mission, right? There's something behind that. What's the backstory? Like, you know, I'm sure there's some more some more detail on that that I'd love to hear. Well, John and I both. That's why we started working on machine translation was that we were both inspired by experiences in life to work on information access. There are kind of two choices, or there are two solutions, which are teach everybody English or or some lingua franca or build technology to make. Information available, and uh, I think the the latter is more attractive than the former. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm an optimist, right? And so I was talking about like how I'm excited about the future of the world, and I, I would say like, hey, now you can grab the world's information like out of the air around you, basically for free, right? You know, yeah. nearly free. But in reality, it's like it's the world's information, probably in English, right? Yeah, that's right. And so 
you know, that idea of like, well, if we're going to truly make it available to everyone in the world, we need to to translate it yeah. so that everyone can access the world's information in a way they can understand it. That's right. Yeah, that's cool. Great. So I'd love to just give you a few minutes here if you were up for. How do you describe the little? I know we've talked about it a lot, but just like the sort of quick pitch that you normally give, however long you want to talk for. Sure. Well, what we do is we provide a, a full solution to large institutions for translating for information and providing their information to their customers in the language that they prefer. And the word solution is important because to do this, you need software to manage the workflow and to make the work efficient. But translation is not a solved problem with technology. So machine translation, best embodied by Google Translate, which is hands down the best general domain system that exists. Um, and is what you know certainly inspired me, and I can speak for John too, to, to work on this technology. It does not provide what an institution needs, which is a certificate of correctness. And the only way that you can do that is to have a, a human involved somehow. And so the whole crux of the problem is to make that human intervention efficient. And so when we call it a solution, we mean that we can provide the full piece of software to manage this process, along with the people to staff the production process. And typically what businesses do now is they'll buy workflow software from this vendor and they'll buy people from this vendor and they'll buy quality control from this vendor. And some companies are dabbling with machine translation now so they might get a Google Translate API key and then they're just kind of like putting together this Frankenstein mess that costs too much and doesn't result in the outcomes that they want. Or maybe it does result in those outcomes but it's really expensive and it takes a lot of labor on their part. We're now, if you rethink the way the whole process works, but you assume that there's a machine translation system at the center of it, and you start to build around that, you arrive at a different solution than if you assume that the human is at the center of it, and you just kind of like, you know, add some things onto it. So you arrive at a different business model, you arrive at a different technology stack, you arrive at completely different outcomes. And so what's interesting for John and I is that we have been building, I don't know what we're on, like the sixth or seventh generation or something of this that we've worked on. It's still the same thing. It does the same thing that it did when we wrote the first prototype in like 2012 or whenever it was. But the way we talk about it and you know all the people that sell it and talk about it and the way it's serviced and all the workflow stuff that goes around it, like that's all... Different, but it, it, it does basically the same thing. And I think the hardest thing for us to learn is that uh, the way you, you know, market things and sell things and talk about them and price them and package them and you know start working with a customer as a partner, the way you execute with that partner, all of that stuff, that's running a business, not just building a piece of technology. And um, Maybe we could have learned that sooner. We probably, if we did it again, we would be quicker, but it's been quite a learning experience. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.